coming up on The Exam Room. Researchers have been looking at this for a while. And sugar itself has effects in the body, but sugar also comes along with other things that have an effect. Years ago, researchers noticed that people who ate more sugar had a higher risk of diabetes. But then other researchers kept looking at this and they discovered that it seemed that what was happening was that people were having their sugary soda along with their cheeseburger and along with their greasy fries. And it wasn't actually the soda or the sugar that caused it. So when it comes to kidney stones, we're thinking the same thing. Is the sugar just a bystander or is it the problem? Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Montgomery, Alabama, Simi Valley, California, and Athens, Greece. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 67 of season six, number 463 overall. Donuts, cake, candy, treats, soda, do these sweet treats come at a high cost? The question, that question is being raised after a new study finds that people who get 25% of their calories from foods that contain added sugar have the highest risk for developing painful kidney stones. But still, other questions remain. And here to bring everything into focus for us today is Dr. Neil Barnard. He is our guest on The Exam Room Live this week. And because he joined us, we also had the opportunity to open up the doctor's mailbag and go beyond this one particular study to take a closer look at kidney stones. Answer questions like, can these so-called healthy sports drinks like Gatorade actually cause them? And what about being overweight? What does that do for the risk? Oxalates and kidney stones is going to be on the table, as will iced tea. What's the connection with kidney stones there? And what are the best foods to eat if you have them? And how much water should you be drinking? Then we get into the keto diet, high animal protein diets, and kidney stones. So much to explore in that regard. Plus, also, we're going to shift gears and talk about a lawsuit that's been filed against the companies behind these blockbuster weight loss drugs, Ozempic and Monjarno. Because now there's a woman suing these drug manufacturers, saying that they have caused her severe gastrointestinal injuries, including what is described as stomach paralysis. So we're going to be talking about the safety track record of these weight loss drugs and what the fallout from this lawsuit might be and what it all could mean for your health. Today's episode of The Exam Room Live is powered by the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund. The Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund supports organizations like the Physicians Committee that carry on Greg's love for animals by promoting plant-based health and working to end animal abuse while emphasizing programs that promote systemic change and also benefit people. You can visit them online right now at GregoryRyderFund.org. That's Gregory Ryder, R-E-I-T-E-R, Fund.org. Lots to get into today. Dr. Neil Barnard on the exam room live with us. And it starts right now with a look at kidney stones. Thanks for being here. 
Great to be with you, Chuck. Let's start by asking this question. How common are kidney stones? Well, they're very common. About maybe one in 10 people has them. And the bad news is once you've got one, you are set up to have another. About maybe a third or a half of people who've had one end up having another and they can be recurrent and they hurt. So very common, Um, but not evenly distributed across the population. Some people higher risk than others. Is it more of a male problem or a female problem? Do we know if they've broken it down by gender? White males in developed countries. Um, I don't know. We don't know why the race. We don't know why the gender. But we we do have a theory about why more developed countries have it, probably diet. Probably diet. So that brings us to the question of the day. It comes to us from Carla, who sent this in, and then also a link to an article that she was reading uh, that linked off to a study that was published in the journal Frontiers in Nutrition. And Carla's question, Dr. Barnard, is whether sugar can, in fact, cause kidney stones. Yeah, the, the, the study um, is a good study. They had a very large group of people. They had very good dietary assessment of them. And what they found is that those people eating the most sugary foods had about a 39% higher risk of getting a kidney stone compared to other people. And it's significant and uh, an important thing. But here's the caution. Uh, This was an association. So you don't know, is it a cause and effect? Here's why. Researchers have been looking at this for a while. And sugar itself has effects in the body, but sugar also comes along with other things that have an effect. Years ago, researchers noticed that people who ate more sugar had a higher risk of diabetes. But then other researchers kept looking at this and they discovered that it seemed that what was happening was that people were having their sugary soda along with their cheeseburger and along with their greasy fries. And it wasn't actually the soda or the sugar that caused it. It was, um, in fact, diet sodas had the same effect or the same association with diabetes as sugary sodas. So the problem was it was the fast food meal not the soda that did it. So when it comes to kidney stones, we're thinking the same, th- same thing. Is the sugar just a bystander or is it the problem? In favor of it being a bystander, meaty diets increase the risk, salty foods increase risk, and sodas go right along with those. They're part of it. On the other, thing, on the other hand, though, arguing for sugar being a problem is that a lot of studies have shown the same thing. This is not the first study to have shown that. So my guess is that it's probably both. That the, We haven't really sorted out the mechanism by which sugar should do this, but it may well have a contribution to it and all the things that go along with that soda, the burger, the fried wings, all of those things are part of the problem too. You're painting a very similar picture to what Dr. David Katz painted for us in the last episode, where he and I were talking about the new view on protein and that we're so obsessed with this one nutrient that we completely ignore everything that is coming with the protein. And you have to look at the complete source and its complete packaging. So yeah, you can get protein from that burger that you were just mentioning, Dr. Barnard, but you're also getting all of the artery-clogging cholesterol, the fat, the calories, like none of the stuff that you actually want, but you're ignoring that just to get to the protein. And we're kind of, what's that saying? You're losing the forest through the trees or something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think that's it. And so that, this goes back to where we started. People in developed countries are more likely to have the problem. So if you're in a country that is impoverished, which means you don't have McDonald's, which means uh, you don't have fast food. You don't even really have a lot of meat anyway. Um, it may well be that people are having 
sugar in their diet from the fruits and things that they can afford to have. And you don't see a whole lot of kidney stones there. The sugar doesn't seem to be the problem in that context. In a developed country, lots of sugary things going along with the meat and the fat and the other parts of the problem. And that's that's a really interesting question. We had somebody already asking whether or not natural sugar, something that you would find in fruit, were examined as part of this study. And uh, is that part of the culprit here that they're looking at, or are we talking exclusively about added sugars? It's the, it seems to be the added sugars that are a problem. Uh, people who eat abundant fruits, and for that matter, abundant vegetables, tend to have fewer stones, not more. To that end, also, you talk about vegetables, eating those in uh, high amounts. Well, oxalates continue to be the talk of the nutrition town in some circles. We have a question from Shan wondering whether or not it's true that eating too many of these oxalates can, in fact, contribute to kidney stones. Well, the most com- there are several different types of kidney stones, and the most common are, made, if you take the stone and you send it to a lab, they're going to dissect it, and they will say, you know, it's a mixture of calcium and oxalate. O- oxalate comes in in a number of vegetables. And so we have assumed that if we reduce the amount of oxalate-containing vegetables that we eat, spinach is kind of the the, the granddaddy of all of them, but some beans as well, some other things like raspberries, uh, that ought to reduce the risk of stones. However, uh, many people have said, well, if it's modest amounts of these things, uh, they don't seem to have much of any effect. And in fact, some diets that really emphasize vegetables and beans have reduced risk of kidney stones. The other thing that has to get factored in is that most of the oxalate in your body doesn't come from the produce counter, comes from your liver. Your liver actually makes it regardless of what you're eating. So that's actually the number one source. Even so, uh, most uh, kidney experts would say it is prudent if you have had a history of kidney stones to not go overboard with high oxalate foods. So have have spinach, have other green vegetables as part of your regular diet, but you might not have an enormous serving of spinach at one meal. All right, Mike wants to dive a little bit deeper. You mentioned spinach there and green vegetables in general. What are some other oxalate-containing foods that we might want to put on our radar? Uh, well, unfortunately, they're all really healthy things. Um, uh, <laughs> really, um, Spinach, of course, gets talked about a lot, but within the bean category, navy beans are one of them, soybeans are another, but people who eat more beans and particularly more soy, have a lot fewer uh, health problems. And people who eat a plant-rich diet tend to have more, have fewer kidney stones too. Uh, raspberries are right on the list as well. So that, that's kind of the big list. Uh, nuts uh, are also feature in this as well. But I, I really do want to emphasize that the evidence for the any of these foods really being a major contributor to kidney stones is rather modest. I want to go back to what it was you were talking about a little bit ago about there being different kinds of kidney stones. Uh, what type in particular were they looking at in this research? Did they specify? No, they didn't. Um, they just looked at kidney stones in general. But if they don't specify, the, the, the type that I mentioned earlier is going to be the one you're looking at, especially calcium oxalate, only because that's by far the most common Gotcha. All right. Now, here's a 201 or a 301 level question for you. Um, Since calcium in urine increases the risk of kidney stones, should we then also be cautious about eating foods that have a high amount of calcium in them? Um, Surprisingly enough, it's a paradoxical answer here. When the calcium is in your food, so I'm going to eat some broccoli, which has got a lot of calcium in it, that calcium is going down my digestive tract. And it binds with the oxalates right in your digestive tract 
and it keeps them from being able to enter your blood and causing stones. So a high calcium intake is actually a good, a good thing. Um, one exception, calcium supplements, if you take them on an empty stomach, they, they, there's no oxalate for them to bind with, and that's going to increase the risk of stones. All right. Let's also talk about the risk of uh, kidney stones in terms of being overweight. We know about three quarters of the people in the United States are either overweight or in fact have obesity. What does that do to a person's risk of developing a kidney stone? Unfortunately, uh, overweight people um, have uh, much higher risk of kidney stones. Uh, this just add this to the to the risks of carrying excess weight. Uh, and an overweight woman has about double the risk compared to uh, a woman who has a more healthy weight. Um, that said, you'll also see kidney stones sometimes with very rapid weight loss and with certain kinds of bariatric procedures. You'll see a higher risk of kidney stones after the fact. So what this makes a case for is following a healthy diet that helps you to really manage your weight and avoid the overweight. And if a person has gotten into excess weight, unwanted weight, the best way typically to take it off is with a healthy, low-fat, plant-based diet because that gives you the best of all possible worlds. All right, so you're talking about a low-fat, plant-based diet. On the opposite end of things uh, is the keto diet, which has been touted for health benefits of a different kind, debatable as to whether or not that is, in fact, a healthy option. Tyron emailed in wondering whether a high-protein meat diet such as keto could, in fact, be a trigger for kidney stones. Yeah, we think so. Um, researchers have done this for years. Uh, when, when, the, when people have followed a ketogenic diet, they'll collect urine samples from them, send the urine to the lab, and what you discover is they're peeing out calcium. They're losing more calcium than before. And so if you're not pretty well hydrated, uh, your risk of stones is going to be higher. Perfect segue to this question. We have, <laughs> let me see if I can find it. This one, it honestly, yeah, comes from Don. And Don is a huge fan of iced tea, wondering whether iced tea can cause kidney stones. He's been told by members of his family that, in fact, is the case. I am going to hazard a guess that the opposite is probably true. Because if you're hydrating well enough, um, keep in mind, what causes a stone is when you've got the calcium and oxalate or other solutes in not enough water. Um, so they coalesce, they form that stone, and then you have trouble getting rid of it. Um, if you have a lot of water running through you because you're drinking water and watery things like tea, uh, your risk of a stone is going to be less. All right. So, all right, let's break this down. Here we have a cup of coffee. I'm good for about three of these bad boys a day, just a splash of almond milk, if not black. And then here I have a reusable water cup that I fill up and I drink about three, three and a half of these every single day. So if I'm on a one-to-one -one ratio, I think there's probably about twice as much water in this. So maybe a two-to-one ratio of water to other beverages. By and large, if somebody's doing something similar like that, do you think that they're going to be pretty safe in terms of kidney stone risk? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would give you a green light. Okay. Good to know. Yeah, All right. Yeah. Enjoy that coffee, my friends. Um, Robin, though, has a question, uh, and this is one. It sounds like she's maybe battling one right now. What should I do if I have a kidney stone? What is the course of treatment there? What, what's the first thing? Okay, well, talk to your doctor, first of all. Uh, you're going to be miserable. Uh, I mean, there, there are many kidney stones that, that are so small you're not aware of them, fair enough. But if you know you've got it, what that means is that you're hurting. And it's got to pass, and it will take some time for that to occur. I mean, there are some stone blasting techniques that doctors will sometimes use. Uh, but for the most part, these stones are just pasts, which, which means your doctor is going to talk with you about pain control. 
um, between now and the time that that stone passes. And then also about making sure it doesn't happen again. So that's it. And, and you want to make sure that you're really well hydrated as well. Um, there are also various medications that are used to try to prevent recurrent stones. Their value is um, debatable uh, among clinicians. So now is the time to get on a healthy plant-based diet and don't forget to hydrate. And to that end, Tony is wondering how much water should somebody be drinking if they have a kidney stone to try to pass it or flush it out of the system? Okay, um, here's sort of my rule of thumb is it's not necessarily a number of glasses. You hear people saying eight, glasses of water each day and each one should have eight ounces in it. Uh, yes, that's the amount of water your body really needs, but you're getting water from foods. So let's say you make some oatmeal in the morning. How did you prepare it? One cup of oatmeal, two cups of water went into it. And so in other words, you're getting water from the foods that you're eating. You have an orange, you have an apple, you're getting water. But, but you could think of that as a, a picture of the amount of water that should go through you. Eight glasses of eight ounces, eight ounces each. Um, but it doesn't have to be out of your tap. It can be just from the foods that you're consuming. Uh, but let me give you another way of judging it. If you go into the bathroom and you pee in the toilet and you look at it and it is concentrated, you are dehydrated. You're not getting enough water. So you want your, your uh, urine to look like more like water and, and uh, not terribly concentrated. And Robin has a follow-up here. You talk about hydrating foods. Um, are those the ones that people should be turning to exclusively? You've mentioned oranges, I think watermelon, pineapple, things like that. And then also, is that a good time to maybe dial back those foods that contain oxalates, the higher levels of them like spinach we were talking about earlier? Um, well, it, if you have a tendency towards stones, spinach is something you can have, but I would keep the, the portions rather modest. And the same with the other oxalate-containing foods. Um, so keep them modest, but you don't have to exclude any of them. Uh, from your diet. Let's grab a few more here. We talked about meat and the connection there. Catherine, though, is wondering about milk and cheese, that dairy connection to kidney stones and whether there could be one. Actually, probably not. Uh, dairy products cause all kinds of other problems. Don't get me wrong. They are not health foods. Uh, they have a lot of fat, especially bad fat. The protein is not particularly healthful for you compared with, with plant-based, plant-derived proteins. I'm talking about the Harvard research that showed that dairy protein is one of the ones that's linked to higher mortality compared to plant protein. However, uh, the saving grace with regard to stones is that dairy products do have calcium, goes down your digestive tract, and it binds with oxalates that are there. And so you're, you're, it's not going to increase the risk of a kidney stone. All right. Now, from time to time, people will email in and they're like, you always talk about the trustworthiness of particular studies and research and presentations. I'm just pointing out to the exam room is that that was just a moment where you know that you can trust the information on this show because it would be so easy to just throw dairy right under the bus for everything. And that didn't happen. You got an honest, honest answer based off of the research that is talked about here on the show, unbiased, and you can take it to the bank for your health right here on the exam room. Appreciate your honesty, Dr. Barnard. That was amazing. Thank you. Well, there's plenty of other reasons. To, oh, don't get me wrong. I know there are. I'm just, just saying bad things this about one. But, this, but no, I'm, I'm not guilty when it comes to this. All right, fair enough. Uh, here we go. Question from Sharon. Exercise. If you are an avid exerciser, could that play any sort of a role in preventing kidney stones? I got to tell you, um, I think you have to be cautious. Like, it could be just the opposite. Now, there are people who say, if you've got a stone, maybe movement will, will help you pass it faster. Maybe so. But here's the problem. Here's where you can run into trouble. Uh, you're out there 
you're exercising, you're sweating like crazy, you're losing fluid, your, your urine is getting more and more concentrated, and that happens um, in the kidney. So you're going to be at higher risk if you're not carefully replacing the water. Now, that's an easy thing to do. You carry a water bottle with you. And for a lot of runners and really um, heavy exercisers, they end up being perfectly well hydrated. And uh, you can actually be more hydrated than you were when you were sedentary because you're paying so much attention to your, um, your water intake. But no, uh, the exercise alone isn't going to stop the kidney stone. But the hydration is something to be really careful of because if you let yourself get dehydrated, stones can form. Interesting question here from Alex. To that end, a lot of athletes, avid exercisers, they turn to Gatorade, Powerade, those sports drinks to refuel after their workout. Uh, Alex is wondering whether they, though, because of the sugar connection here that we were talking about, could be a contributing factor. Well, it's a great question because you've got two different things, two different parts of the beverage working at cross purposes. Uh, the sugar is in there associated with stones, as we've seen, although we haven't, as I, as I mentioned, we haven't really figured out what the mechanism is. Why is it doing it? Is it really, uh, is it really the cause? But contrary to it is you've got this massive hydrating function. And of these two, the hydration is going to win. So overall, these, these are going to help you prevent stone. Aspartame has been in the news recently. We've talked about added sugars. We've talked about natural sugars. We haven't talked yet about artificial sugars, though. And Marge is wondering whether they could perhaps be a contributing factor for kidney stones. Only if your diet soda comes with a burger. <laughs> More honesty. Boy, you are dropping <laughs> truth bombs left and right today, Dr. Barnard. Yeah, but you know it's true. Uh, when Very often people get a diet soda because... They're concerned about all the calories and everything else they're eating. How many people have gotten a double bacon cheeseburger and the Diet Coke? Um, so keep be, be careful about the things that go along with it. Absolutely. Hey, you know what? Uh, with the time that we have left here today, I know that we, uh, we're all getting ready for the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine. We're going to talk about that in one minute here. But uh, there was another interesting story that crossed my news desk here this week. And that was, we've talked a lot recently about these weight loss drugs. And Dr. Barnard, there is a woman in Louisiana who is suing the manufacturers of two of these popular, I mean, they've even been called blockbuster weight loss drugs, and she's claiming that they caused her severe injuries, including what her lawyers have termed gastric paralysis. So let me read this to you from an article that NBC published on this lawsuit. It says, quote, in the suit, the woman alleges that Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly failed to adequately warn patients about the possible risk of severe stomach problems associated with their drugs, Ozempic and Monjaro. And they go on to say that this is the first lawsuit to allege that these drugs can cause severe gastrointestinal injuries. Uh, the clinical definition that they threw out there was gastroparesis is what this woman was suffering from. So before we get into anything else, what is stomach paralysis slash gastroparesis that they're referring to? Okay, well, these may be the first lawsuits, but they're not going to be the last uh, because gastroparesis is something, it may be part of how these drugs work. Normally, your stomach, it moves. Your, your stomach has a, a, a neurological feature of being able to move food downward into the small intestine. From there, it goes into the large intestine. So you have a thin layer of muscles that make that happen, and they are under the control of nerves. And when you eat food naturally, let's say you're not on Wagovi or Ozempic, when you eat foods naturally, the food goes down. Once it gets into your small intestine, your small intestine says, wait a minute, 
don't release more food yet. Let your body digest it a little bit. Let the stomach acid eat it up a little bit. And so your your, your intestinal tract releases GLP-1, which slows down the stomach, uh, emptying a little bit so that you can get proper digestion. So Ozempic and Wagovi are analogs of that, which, which greatly multiply that effect. It, can, it basically makes your stomach stop for some people or variants of that. It'll slow it down a lot. And where this is really a problem is if, let's say a person has diabetes and they're taking Ozempic for that reason. It brings their blood sugar down. It makes their appetite diminish. Uh, but they, they may have neurological gastroparesis also. So because of the effects of the diabetes, slowing their stomach emptying, and they're now taking a drug that slows their stomach emptying, you can have the stomach just sit there what you ate for lunch on Monday is still there on Wednesday in some cases. And where we're hearing about this, Chuck, is from anesthesiologists. We told the patient to fast overnight before their surgical procedure, but they came in and they vomited all this food despite the fact they haven't been eating anything. It's because the stomach can't empty. And how long does the normal digestive process take? We typically are told don't eat after midnight if you're having a procedure in the morning. So is that eight-hour window typically enough to process everything? Oh, yes. Um, your stomach is empty within minutes, um, For t- typically. Um, your, your body, assuming you're eating healthful plant-based foods, your body takes a little time so that the stomach acid mixes with the food in the stomach, and then it moves it along. It doesn't sit on it for a, a terribly long time. It's minutes, it's not hours. Um, however... Uh, many people aren't eating healthy foods. They're not eating high fiber foods. Things sit in their stomach for a longer period of time. And on these drugs, every, the effects are, are really quite varied. And, and it, this doesn't happen to everybody to a noticeable degree. But a lot of people do have the vomiting, which is partly because their stomach is keeping all the foods that they've eaten. Um, uh, so, so, so it does happen. And you'll see people three, four, or five hours uh, after eating, the food's still there. Or, or a substantial portion of it is still there. You're not painting a very pretty picture here because what I'm envisioning is kind of like a rush hour traffic jam around the Beltway here in the Washington, D.C. area, which is just notorious for bumper-to-bumper, slow-as-molasses type of traffic that just takes forever to clear. It sounds like this is kind of the same thing that's occurring because a person is taking these drugs. Would I be correct in that analogy? It's a really great analogy, Chuck, I have to say. And and the food, instead of moving along, is just sitting there. And again, different people have different results, but this is a common thing. And I heard of a complaint from a teacher who said because she had all this food in her stomach that wasn't leaving, she was belching a lot. And it, the, as the food had just sat there hour after hour after the hour, and, and the students could smell the food that she was sort of belching up. And it was just this kind of creepy uh, image of a person whose digestion has just been shut off by these medications. So uh, this is not the, the end of the litigation. Um, these drugs are relatively new. And so the, the side effects and how common they are is going to be something that's going to become clearer as the years go by. And I'm quite certain there'll be many more 
lawsuits about this. Yeah, it sounds like this woman who filed the lawsuit, her attorneys are also very much uh, expecting more to come. Uh, this also from the NBC article uh, says, quote, about 400 people have come forward to claim to have had gastrointestinal injuries caused by these diabetes medications. That's what these weight loss drugs were originally brought to market for. Um, but the lawyers also state that they expect to see thousands of such cases. So you have hundreds of reported cases. This is the first lawsuit, but this first lawsuit is the domino, the first domino to topple, and there are going to be many more to come. And that raises another interesting point is, you know, what kind of data did we have before these drugs were brought to market in terms of long-term safety risks? Clearly, the gold standard that I've heard in speaking with other doctors is you want something like at least 10 to 20 years in terms of safety data, and that should make you feel pretty comfortable with the results. I can't imagine in this case that we had anything uh, in that 10 to 20 year range, Dr. Barnard. I have to tell you, Chuck, when I was a resident, um, I remember my uh, one of my professors said, don't prescribe any drug within the first year of its release on the market. And he would say, say let somebody else's patient um, have this, <laughs> the, the untoward effects. And I have to say that that's, you can understand that advice because when things are marketed, they may have been on the, on, on the market, they may have been in testing for a while, but it's a limit to how, how long the studies have gone on. Uh, the efficacy studies on Wagovi were about 68 weeks. So call it a year and, and change. Now, now the contrary uh, argument is well, Ozempic was on, which is the same drug at a lower dose, has been on the market. Quite a lot of people have used it, but the rub here is that we never had this massive media frenzy about drugs before. We never had people racing off to CVS to get their prescriptions filled because obesity is much more common than diabetes. So once they are approved, once they've been approved for obesity and you're seeing a huge number of people using them, then something that was an uncommon side effect and could have been just chance now becomes common and people litigate about it. So we're talking about gastroparesis, of course. We're talking about the digestive problems. But this is where gallbladder disease, pancreatitis, and thyroid cancer are on our radar. There was a huge study in France that showed about a 58% increased risk of thyroid cancer. So you don't see that very much if it's a 1,000 people in your study. But when you've got millions of people on these drugs, that's when you start to see it. Let me ask you this. There was an interesting conversation I had with a friend of mine over dinner this past weekend where she and I were talking about her friends who would go to these med spas where they uh, were clearly not overweight, but they would go to get injections of these drugs, definitely within the normal BMI range, totally doing this for what I assume would be vanity reasons. What do you think that's going to do to somebody who doesn't have any of the issues that these drugs would ordinarily be prescribed to treat? Um, it's troubling to hear that that kind of thing happens. You can understand because when, it, when anything's a fad, people race to it and try it. But uh, the, the most benign thing you can say is that any benefit a person gets from it with regard to weight loss will typically not meet their expectations. Um, if you were obese before, you're still going to be obese. You'll have, you'll have lost some weight, but not a huge amount. So if you're mildly overweight, you'll lose some weight, but you, you may not get to where you want to go. The bad thing is when you stop taking it, the weight that you have lost for the most part comes right back. So you're just basically playing with your physiology and and throwing yourself at risk along the way. What I would, I would love to see much more is a person using that money, that 
15,600 bucks that uh, that's the typical price after discount for Wagovi for a year after um, discount yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah, the, the, the manufacturer has wow. used these these promotional discounts. About $50,600 a year. For that kind of money, you could visit, you could have a doctor prescribe a plant-based diet. You could have a meeting with a dietitian every week for a year. You could get a couple hundred dollars worth of groceries, an $80 gym membership, and probably 120 bucks a month for a vacation um, for the price of Wagovi. And with that kind of support, let me tell you, you're going to lose more weight, more effectively than you would with these drugs. You know, it's funny, you talk about that price tag, and that is one of the main factors that uh, researchers have found for people not staying on these drugs. As a matter of fact, uh, multiple reports have stated that the average person who goes on these is on them for a year or less for a number of reasons. Uh, it could be because they get sick, like the woman who filed the lawsuit. It could be because $15,600 a year is not sustainable for the majority of people out there. But then when you go off of these drugs, you just said that in most cases, the weight comes pouring back. Is it a rapid weight regain that we're often seeing with that? Yes, it's rapid. Now, some people will maintain a little bit of weight loss. For others, they don't maintain any and it occurs very rapidly upon discontinuation. But the numbers, the, the numbers are, are, are troubling. We, we, there have been three big studies on this, one in the U.S., uh, one in the U.K., and then one uh, that pharmacists did to track usage. And what we are seeing is maybe half of people stopped them within a year. By two years, the vast majority have stopped them. And the latest data show that maybe two-thirds or three-quarters are stopping them within the first year. Why? Because they got so much hype that these drugs are going to answer your problem, and they don't. Um, secondly, uh, the side effects were sort of minimized in, in many press reports, and the side effects for a lot of people are really bad. So I think the majority of people are putting their prescriptions in the trash, uh, and then some people do stick with it for a longer period of time, as long as they can pony up the dough. And let me straight shoot with you here for a second, thinking back to the old me when I was struggling with my weight. Even if all of the side effects were reported, and told to me. I think that in that case, I would still have been so desperate that I would have rolled the dice and said, shoot me up, shoot me up, because I'm just so sick of being trapped in this body. And I would have convinced myself that I had tried literally everything else. And I felt that way with every fiber of my being, but I guarantee you I never tried to eat a healthy plant-based diet. That's for daggone sure. So clearly not everything had been tried. But we, it's just such a difficult thing to type in, tap into the patient's psyche as well to really explain all of the options on the table. Because when something shows promise, man, it's like you make a beeline for that and consequences just don't matter. They are totally irrelevant there. And I think that both as patients who have made it on the other side, as well as physicians, it would be wonderful if we could all get together and try to figure out how to crack this code to really lay out everything as thoroughly and as cleanly as possible in an understanding way that then could help move the needle so that people no longer have to fear being on this yo-yo diet. Because man, I'm telling you, there is a dread that comes with it. You lose the weight and you're just biting your time. You're counting down the days until it comes back and you just feel like you have drawn that genetic short straw, man. It is frustrating. And I don't know really uh, who 
you know, is going to be the one who's able to move that needle. But I do hope, Dr. Barnard, that what it is we do here on this show, laying out the facts as we do, is really going to help somebody who's wrestling and making these decisions for themselves. You made such uh, such an important point, Chuck. And a couple of things need to be said about sort of truth in advertising. Uh, we've talked about the side effects of these, but it's also important to talk about what's the benefit that, that a person may hope to get. A person who weighs 300 pounds and they're thinking, you know, my ideal body weight is 150. Well, Wagovi is not going to get you there. Um, if, if you if, if you look at research participants who are really trying their best, they're changing their diet to a uh, typically a portion control diet along with the drug given at a maximal uh, dose. Uh, a person who starts at 300 may end up at 270, 260, something like that. And at that point, the weight loss sort of just kind of plateaus. And the person says, well, 260 is better than where I was, but I'm still in the obese range. What can I do now? And the answer to it is to focus on the kind of diet that really does stop the weight gain and promotes the weight loss. And that's to focus on the high fiber, beans and vegetables and fruits and whole grains and get the animal products out, keep the oils low. And when a person eats those things, that's your best chance of getting to an optimal diet weight, now some uh, an, an optimal uh, body weight. And so the, the idea of hoping that a drug is going to get you there, uh, these drugs only do so much, and they do so at quite a cost with regard to side effects and the financial cost. And you know, one more thing here before we wrap things up, I think back also to my olden days. And I think that one of the things that may have, even as you know, deeply as my heels would have been dug in to get this injection. One of the things that may have slightly, you know, loosened up that grip a little bit would be if somebody were to have said, well, look, historically, the track record for weight loss medications is this. Some of them have been pulled for the from the market because of ineffectiveness. Some have had been pulled because of safety concerns. And if I had that kind of data, well, then I would be able to glean what my expected result with this would have been. So what is the track record by and large for weight loss drugs? Have we seen a lot of them pulled for ineffectiveness or safety concerns in the past? Yes, most of them, in fact. Um, and, and this goes back many, many years. Back in the 30s, uh, researchers started using amphetamine and am, am, speed. Amphetamine uh, does dampen your appetite and does cause weight loss, but it causes many problems, uh, addictions and other things. So now amphetamines do have a legitimate use uh, in, in pediatric psychiatry, um, but they must be used with caution and as weight loss, no, they should not be prescribed for that purpose. And then I guess the big headlines in the 1990s, I guess it was FenFen which was a combination drug that was all the rage. I mean, every talk show was about this miracle weight loss drug until it started causing damage to the heart valves that in some cases was, was fatal. Um, and since that time, there have been many, many drugs uh, on the market. Most of them have, uh, have been withdrawn. Now, that said, uh, the pharmaceutical industry has learned from these disasters uh, that have occurred. And so they're trying to be more cautious, but they still make big mistakes and they'll put things on the market with great hoopla um, that turn out to be uh, not particularly effective and to have a whole lot of side effects. So uh, we're, we're waiting to see. I mean, we're, we're living out the, the, uh, the experience of this uh, new kind of marketing right now. And my hope is that at some point we'll be able to, to go back to what's more sensible and use the weight loss 
methods that are ingrained into our DNA, which is to process healthy, high-fiber foods in a, in a good and efficient way so that weight gain doesn't occur and that excess weight gets removed. That's really the approach that we need to see. It's just a fascinating conversation, and it's something that we're going to be diving into quite deeply uh, at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine. Uh, you and I, we're going to be on a big panel Friday afternoon with Dr. Jamie Kane, who was just on the show, Dr. Jim Loomis, our friend, Dr. Garth Davis, uh, Hannah Kaliova, Dr. Hannah Kaliova, Dr. Steve Loam, Dr. Vanita Rahman, all talking about uh, weight loss, drugs, surgery the best approach to weight loss, sustained weight loss. I really think that, you know, for me, for personal reasons, this is kind of the the signature presentation for the entire conference, uh, a two-hour panel. I just, I can't wait to hear everybody's point of view. And, you know, hopefully we can make a difference for uh, the physicians in the room, especially who then can take all of this information back to their patients. It's going to be a very balanced discussion, looking at the pros and cons of all these different approaches, which is great. But I have to say, I think the presentation that I'm really excited about there was the one that Dr. Kaliova is going to describe, where she herself did uh, a study where she gave a single meal uh, and looked at the GLP-1 secretion that in the body itself following that meal. And she found which meals cause natural GLP-1 release versus which ones that fail. She's going to present those data. I think it's going to be very exciting. And of course, Chuck, can't wait to hear what you have to say because you're going to be talking about this as not only as a person who deals with the health issues here every day, but also you've lived it. And we can't wait to hear your perspective as well. Yeah, I'm nervous. You got me up there with all, all you <laughs> doctors and I'm expected to speak intelligently, man. The pressure's on, Dr. Barter. The pressure's on. <laughs> I can't wait. It's going to be great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, if you are in the Washington, D.C. area or just have a wild hair to join us, look, you can still get there. It's August 10th through the 12th at the Grand Hyatt. Go to pcrm.org slash ICNM. We would love to see you there. We're going to be doing all kinds of interviews for the podcast uh, at the conference. And then also we're going to be doing some live. So we'll be around there. But then it's just so much phenomenal information. Three days worth. You've got Senator Cory Booker, who's going to open up everything for us on Thursday. Thursday morning. Uh, Dr. Michael Greger will be closing the show on Saturday afternoon. In between, we've got Dr. Dean Ornish, Dr. Christy Funk, Dr. Andrew Freeman, uh, my co-host from One Healthy World, Dr. Gemma Newman will be there. Brenda Davis, love her, such an amazing dietitian from Canada. Dr. David Katz, who was just on the show, and so many others. Once again, it's an all-star cast of health that you have assembled here, Dr. Barnard, and I can't think anyone is going to walk away disappointed. Certainly, uh, Health IQ are going to be raised this weekend, no doubt about it. Yeah, we're, we're really tackling the big issues that really need to, to be talked about. We're talking about tackling diabetes, talking about these weight issues that you and I have been discussing, medications, surgery, the dietary approach, what's really the best way. We're going to talk about the totally new view of protein, which blows all the discussions of, uh, about this out of the water, breast cancer prevention. Uh, and that's, when we get, that's before we get to the food because the food is going to be incredible as it always is, but it's now it's, it's really highlighted because we're going to be presenting the foods from the New York Health and Hospital System, the ones that are part of their amazing new vegan uh, system. The, 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 uh, the chef will be there with us, and Dustin Harder will be there presenting the Universal Meals foods. So uh, it's going to be an incredible experience. Yeah, man, I can't wait. It is that, okay, I take back what I said about you know the highlight of the conference being that panel. No, uh, the panel is second. 
the food is first. <laughs> That's just the way it's going to be uh, for every year that we do the conference, no doubt about it. Uh, and of course, also looking ahead, September 20th in Norfolk, Virginia, my hometown, uh, you and your band Carbon Works, a completely different event, but nonetheless, another great event. Uh, just great, phenomenal event at the Narrow, the historic little cinema house in uh, in in the Ghent area of Norfolk. So you and the band, you're going to be there on September 20th. Showtime there, 7.15, pcrm.org slash events to get your tickets. Uh, dusting off the old guitar, man. I know that you got that new <laughs> album out there. Are you excited? Yeah, Vanishing Act is uh, Carbon Works' new album. It just came out, and it's been a lot of fun. And we did shows in New York, here in D.C., one in Chicago. And now we're coming, to, coming down to Norfolk, Virginia, because a lot of the musicians are from there. So what we're going to do is, is I am going to talk a little bit about health and the things you and I have discussed, Chuck. Then we're going to turn down the lights, and we're going to watch the latest Carbon Works music videos. We'll have a live performance from the Harbor Quartet, just going to play lots of food, lots of drinks, lots of time to rub elbows and talk. So it's going to be a fun event. Good time will be had by all. And look, we can't wrap up today, Dr. Barnard, without uh, giving a big thank you to the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund for powering today's episode of The Exam Room Live. And you know, the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund supports organizations just like the Physicians Committee that carry on Greg's love for animals by promoting plant-based health and working to end animal abuse while also emphasizing programs that promote systemic change and also benefit people. And you can visit them online right now at GregoryRyderFund.org. That's Gregory Writer, R-E-I-T-E-R, fund.org. And I do hope that we get to see Allison Mahoney from the Writer Fund at the conference this weekend as well. I just love her to death. She is just the greatest. Absolutely. You know, Greg had such a wonderful heart for animals and was such a kind person. And Allison carries that forward so, so beautifully and really pushing the cause that we share in such a great way. Yeah, I want to catch up with her and see how the horses are doing on her rescue ranch up there. So uh, it'll be great to see her, but check them out online, GregoryRiderFund.org. And by the way, Dr. Barnard, my friend, uh, thank you for being here. Looking forward to catching up with you at the conference. I know the schedule is crazy leading up to it, so greatly appreciate you making the time today, my friend. I wouldn't miss a check. Thanks. Be sure to join us every Wednesday, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel or Facebook page for The Exam Room Live. Hang out with the other exam roomies, ask your questions, fill up that doctor's mailbag, and raise your health IQ alongside with us. Dr. Will Bolsowitz will be our guest on The Exam Room Live next week. And as you heard Dr. Barnard and I talk about on the day that this episode is released, August 10th, it is still not too late for you to join us in Washington, D.C. for the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine. Get your tickets right now. PCRM.org slash ICNM. Now, coming up here on the exam room, in the coming weeks, the coming months, rounding out the year, it's going by fast. We have some major, major, major guests on the horizon, starting with Dan Butner from the Blue Zones. He's got a new book and Netflix documentary that will be coming out. So he's going to be joining us here on the show. Also, for the first time ever from the famed Proof podcast, Simon Hill will be with us. And then a little bit later on in the year, Dr. Michael Greger 
and I will be sitting down to talk about his new book, How Not to Age. So we have so much on the horizon. We want for you to be a part of that. And the easiest way to do that is to make sure that you have subscribed to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever it is that you get your shows. And when you do subscribe, please also take a second to leave that five-star rating because that helps people who are in search of this potentially life-changing and life-saving information. It helps them find it. So go ahead, make sure that you don't miss any of those interviews with Simon Hill, Dan Buettner, Dr. Michael Greger, and so many others. Follow and subscribe for The Exam Room today, wherever it is that you get your shows. And before we wrap up here today, little tease that next week on the show with Dr. Bolsowitz, we are going to be talking about our next big event, live and in person. And that's going to be right here in Washington, D.C. this November. Details coming very soon, and it is going to be a big time night to remember with one of the first families of plant-based eating. Details next week with Dr. Bolsowitz. But for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Neil Barnard for being here and raising our health IQs. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. Plant-based.